Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the first episode in our new series linked to our vows issue. I'm Peter Mobson, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking about Pete's lead editorial, Word is Bond, and then we'll be welcoming our colleague Katrin Kuiper, Plow's Editor-at-Large, to talk about Les Miserables. So, Pete, let's talk about your editorial. Yeah, let's talk about vows. Let's talk about vows. Um, so, why do a whole issue of Plow on vows? What were we thinking? It seems like a really obscure topic, doesn't it? Um, well, there's all kinds of reasons to talk about vows, but let's first start with the big picture, which is that I think it's a fair generalization to say that we live in a culture that's increasingly addicted to low commitment everything, low commitment friendship, low commitment clubs, low commitment organizations, low commitment magazine subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we just, because of the consumerist world in which we live, the idea of giving up, binding ourselves, giving up future freedoms, giving up future options, locking ourselves in, uh, is a pretty widespread phobia. Mm-hmm. And that's not just me saying that. There's a whole bunch of social science data that also seems to indicate that. You, um, you have a phrase here, the categorical imperative to keep your options open. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I can only speak from my own experience. You know, as a college student, definitely. I mean, I even wrote embarrassing poetry about this. I mean, just this idea of nobody's going to lock me down, Uh right? The sky is the limit, Uh you know, uh, be all you can be. These, these are these things that you almost don't think about how deeply, Uh uh, that type of kind of stupid categorical imperative is ingrained Uh into folks who've grown up maybe in the last 34 years. Uh, in a way that is sort of unprecedented in human history. Mm-hmm. So whether that's good or bad, I think it's the case. And mm-hmm. uh, we can talk about this, but there's three big institutions in society that reflect real lifelong commitments uh, that are all in trouble. What are those three? And uh, yeah, so uh, of course, <laughs> thank you. That's what I was waiting for. Tip me up. Okay, so one big one is marriage. Uh, So it's not a new story. People are postponing marriage. Uh, They are avoiding marriage. More and more people are never getting married. Um, They're cohabiting before marriage, which is statistically leads to more likely divorce. Uh, There is sort of on the cultural fringes, but we've seen that cultural fringes can be quite influential over time, a kind of growing critique of monogamy itself. Um, so that's not a, only sort of this drumbeat in certain quarters for open marriage and polyamory and so forth, but also kind of well-regarded, I guess, ethicists saying even voluntary monogamy Mm-hmm. is by its nature oppressive. You mm-hmm. are binding the freedom, the future freedom of somebody else by putting them into this kind of emotionally coercive expectation mm-hmm. that they won't um, you know, be unfaithful to you. Mm-hmm. So that's 
marriage is, is one big one. Mm -hmm. uh, people seem to be scared of marriage. Another one is military service. Uh, the New York Times did an interesting article over the summer saying, for instance, this year, the U.S. Army is just unable to recruit enough new soldiers. They have a shortfall of like 40%, at least at the time of writing the article. Uh, and this really seems to reflect a lack of desire to serve. Uh, of course, there's a lot of background stuff to their, this. Um, part of it is possibly uh, just kind of disillusionment with America's foreign wars, a sense uh, that, you know, the type of deployment that I might be sent to isn't the type of thing I'm going to give my life for because it doesn't really have full democratic support. Uh, there's the issue of massive lack of physical fitness, right? That only a quarter of enlistment eligible young people uh, actually are physically fit enough to get into the or, uh, military forces, even though they've they're kind of squinting sometimes mm -hmm. um, and letting people in. But more basically, just this idea of service to country uh, is just not that attractive an option mm -hmm. and this idea of locking yourself down now, now not for life as in marriage at least ideally as in marriage but for a good long time mm -hmm. in an in a identity shaping way and then there's I guess most niche uh, but I think reflects also some wider things going on in the field of religion uh, monastic communities mm -hmm. so monasticism is one of the oldest forms of lifelong commitment where you give yourself to a particular way of life. Obviously in Western countries, Catholicism is sort of the main locus where that happens. Although of course other, you know, Christian and non-Christian traditions have uh, monastic communities going back hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years. And monastic numbers are just, have been in free fall since the sixties. While it's not, bad everywhere, right? There are traditionalist orders, and some of them are really great friends of Plow and of the Bruderhof, the community I'm part of, um, that are doing actually quite well. Mm -hmm. Taken as a whole, uh, the declines are, are just staggering mm -hmm. in the number of Catholic sisters and, and Catholic religious brothers uh, over the last 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So, and that's across, that's around the world. Again, you know, there's a few countries where there's counter currents, but really sort of where modernity reigns, mm -hmm. monastic numbers decline. Mm -hmm. And that seems quite fascinating because it, it also seems to track with the much discussed rise of the nuns. So even much weaker, more diluted forms of religious commitment just to a denomination uh, seem to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. So... We can talk about the reasons for that, but I think that's just a fact that is. Yeah. That there's something in our society that that really doesn't like commitments. And so what does this have to do with vows, one might ask? Well, a vow is sort of the exact opposite of keeping your options open. Mm. A vow is, I think, G.K. Chesterton um, says it's making appointment with your an appointment with your future self 
that you bind yourself to make, that you're going to show up. And uh, that's really scary. Uh, and it's not coincidental that marriage and military service and monastic life all be begin with a vow. And from a Christian and Jewish point, point of view, Scripture is just suffused with the language of vows and also of covenant, a related idea. So obviously there's something going on here if you're a Christian believer to pay attention to. One of the things that was interesting to me about your piece is that you really kind of marry two different strands of human experience. One is this very kind of subjective, or you might think subjective, like how, how are we experiencing our lives? Um, how are we sort of, uh, there's a kind of sense of free floatingness that doesn't actually seem to be very good for us. It doesn't conduce to our happiness in the fullest sense, although it kind of seems to promise a fast food version of happiness. Um, and you talk about, and then, and then there's kind of like the political element as well. And one of the words that comes up pretty early on in your piece is post-liberalism. Um, do you want to talk about the connection that you drew between someone like Jordan Peterson and the kind of post-liberal moment that we seem to be having? Well, before we get to post-liberalism, I guess we should talk about what we mean by liberalism and just the, the real elementary school version of it mm -hmm. is those famous lines from the American Declaration of Independence, in many ways the, the founding charter of liberal modernity, you know, that every human being is endowed by their creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this prizing of the individual's right to liberty is sort of at the heart of liberalism, the Western liberal tradition. So post-liberalism is saying, well, you know, what does that all leave out? Mm -hmm. um, who does it leave out? Mm -hmm. Who are the people who have this, are able to exercise the right of liberty? Well, people who are healthy, probably male, probably rich. Um, but what are the other things it le leaves out? It leaves out um, community. It leaves out mutuality. It leaves out solidarity. It leaves out a shared sense of what is good and what is bad for human beings. Because if we're each sort of just free to pursue our own solitary paths toward life, liberty, and happiness. Uh, that seems to leave out a lot of what actually makes human beings flourish. Um, and so what I kind of was looking at in connection with this sort of, you know, addiction to endless options as being a feature of our, our modern society is that there really is a countercurrent to that kind of individualist liberal creed mm -hmm. going on today um, in the political world, but then also uh, just in the therapeutic mode. And there, somebody like the Canadian Jungian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who sold millions of books and attracted millions of people to his YouTube uh, show, uh, w by talking about as his book says, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, Right? So there's this chaos out there, mm -hmm. the chaos of endless options, of endless freedoms, of endless, the promise of endless self-definition, -def mm -hmm. which it turns out a lot of people are really unhappy with mm -hmm. and um, hasn't made them happy. And they haven't grown up happy living in chaos, um, living in a society that 
doesn't seem to have firm anchors, firm guideposts. Um, and so they're looking for some type of solidity, and, and Jordan Peterson is giving them that uh, in a way that I'm always just fascinated by the hunger mm -hmm. that his actually fairly anodyne prescriptions um, seem to fill. Yeah. It, it, I mean, they're really not that big a deal. And although he's become kind of coded as this alt, you know, dark, intellectual, dark web type figure, if you read his book, some of which is actually laughably um, ponderous, um, it, it's, you know, it's stuff that a good dad should tell his son, basically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, stand up straight, make your bed, you know, mm -hmm. don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. in your dealings with other people and with animals. Mm -hmm. You live in a world of cause and effect and depending on what you choose, like you're, you know, you are, you are going to be reaping, um, either a, a kind of weightlessness or a kind of more weighty life. So while we're riffing on Jordan Peterson, I also just got a new puppy. And so <laughs> I brushed off some dog training books and I was reading, this classic of dog training is this guy who was on TV for a long time, Cesar Milan. Did you ever run into him? I kind of think I might have. Yeah, yeah, Oprah had him on his show. Yeah. He trained Oprah's dog. He had a lot of sort of celebrity uh, dog owners whose dogs were just wreaking havoc in their lives. Mm -hmm. And his book is called Cesar's Way, and he has a fascinating backstory. Um, the book's old. It's been around for a long time. Um, Predictably enough, I think if you go online, you'll find lots of critics now of mm -hmm. Cesar mm -hmm. being a bad guy. But it just kind of struck me reading his thing, which is basically about in your relationship with your dog, mm -hmm. you need to establish dominance and submission on the part of the dog, uh, not violently, but just in the way you bear yourself, stand up straight, walk like you're Julius Caesar or Cleopatra through your suburb with your you know little dog in tow, projecting the kind of energy that a pack animal will respect, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just going through this book and just laughing to myself because I just read Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And Cesar Milan is giving the exact same type of uh, type of advice. And of mm -hmm. course, he didn't hasn't reaped the same sort of uh, liberal scorn as Jordan Peterson has. Uh, I guess he has the right friends. Uh, but he's basically just telling dog owners how to kind of be a good animal. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> had to be the good leader of an animal pack. Mm -hmm. And it, it, a lot of it was just sort of Jordan Peterson yeah. rules. Yeah, so I think that rules for life, you know, are good as far as they go. Yeah, it is probably pretty good to stand up straight, to live an orderly life, to work out, mm -hmm. uh, to project a sense of confidence and not hate yourself. Mm -hmm. like, like, that's probably good. However, they're not near, that's not nearly enough to live a good life. Um, and so I think things like that respond to the sense of just liquid modernity. Zygmunt Bauman called it 20 years ago, but they're very incomplete answers yeah. and part potentially misleading answers. If you don't fill your life with an actual goal that goes beyond them. It seems to me that they are extremely necessary and also extremely insufficient um, on a right. couple of different levels. One of those levels being that they are 
self-helpy things that are very individualistic. They're things which you definitely need. Jordan Peterson's book is extremely individualistic. Yeah. It's really about being the top lobster, right? Yeah. Which, you know, that is, there is a place for that. There is a place for learning how to be a good animal. Um, and that being a kind of project that you as a probably, you know, young man as kind of his prototypical audience are, you, this is something that you, you can only do, only you can do. But even there, um, you know, the role that Jordan Peterson plays in a lot of people's lives is a kind of, as a kind of mentor. There's, it's not just a self-help thing. It's also like this sense, the reason that people are very impassioned about him is that there's this sense that he is another outside you who is telling you to do these things. And I think that one of the things that that implies and that kind of his, his book kind of leaves um, open is the kind of necessarily communal nature of any non-liquid, any real solid life um, that you're going to make for yourself or receive from others even. Um, and so I, I think that like what, what you began speaking about, um, you know, at the top of this episode, the, the idea of vows and the vows that we actually concretely make to communities, to each other in marriage, which I just did three months ago, um, you know, in as Christians in our baptism, the vows that we that we make to God, these are things that are not, they're not self-helpy and they're not individualistic. Um, they're ways of being a good animal that actually transcend animality and, or, or at least transcend, um, the kind of instinctive animality that, that, uh, might lead you to be a good wolf pack leader or dog pack leader, um, and lead you into a kind of full humanness. Well, and this is where, you know, I, I think that the, just the existence of vows, the public existence of vows is a kind of sign to the wider society that the liberal promise isn't enough. Yeah. I think that's why we put together an issue on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I hasten to say, you know, I think you and I both you know as many things we appreciate about political liberalism. Mm -hmm. We, you know, the rights and freedoms and human dignity, those are all wonderful and important things, but it's this and yet mm -hmm. part that vows, although they may seem so niche, mm -hmm. actually are super central. Mm -hmm. And I can say just like, like you said, uh, you, you married, that was a utterly transforming vow, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That there's very few parts of your life that are not changed by saying, I do. Yeah. Uh, to this one other person and becoming united in marriage. Uh, you know, I definitely remember that from my own marriage. Um, in my editorial, I also talk about taking lifelong vows of membership in the Berdoff community, uh, the Anabaptist community that publishes Plow. And that feeling, although it was not, you know, an exalted moment, I remember it very vividly there's a question that's asked, um, do you yield yourself completely and bind yourself unreservedly to God and to your brothers and sisters? Uh, there's another question that says, uh, do you give yourself with all the strength of your being, all the faculties of your body and soul? Um, and those were the things that earlier mm -hmm. were precisely what I wanted to keep for myself. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so in saying yes, I'm giving that over. Um, obviously, it didn't change me into a better person. Uh, and I hasten to add, you know, there's, you know, a, a million years, a million ways since then that I, you know, don't live those vows out. But they took a whole bunch of stuff off the table. Yeah. Um, and what I see a lot, just looking around, just anecdotally, is people paralyzed by daydreams mm -hmm. of the options that they of the people they might be mm -hmm. you know the, the, the kind of ins, instagram figure that life they might leave uh the how they might be different if they bought this or that service or appliance or mm -hmm. you know became a bodybuilder or picked up this or that skill um and that's not a way to live your life and I mean, I think that probably the choice of a spouse um, is is the thing that is most kind of familiar to the average person. Like, even if you're not married, for most of us, we've at least thought about like, what if I gave, what if I gave myself to this person? What if that was like it? And I think there is a kind of sense of, okay, that would be closing down every other option like to to make a choice is to close down every other choice exactly and that that's scary because it feels like well you, you feel as though you're limiting yourself mm -hmm. but what if what if i meet the yeah. perfect guy yeah. next week right yeah. or the perfect girl and but the but what you find out when you actually make those vows like in that moment it feels this is totally i'm so sorry i'm going to do it again it's c.s lewis time it it is something that's bigger on the inside. Um, you know, it looks like you are going in. You are you are going into a smaller place because you're going from a place of potential to a place of actuality. But what it you know, as it turns out, when you make those vows to another person, there's this whole I, there's this whole other world inside that that you could have never gotten to except by making those vows, except by going through that door and closing it and being on the other side. And, and then and once you do that, you sort of realize the potential life is not, is not a life. You have to actually live your life. You can't have it be perpetually freshman year. Yep. Yeah. You can't be perpetually about to choose my major yeah. and I'm not sure what I'm going to do after college. Right. Yes. At some point you are just that thing that you are. So, Here's this G.K. Chesterton quote, and you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Of course, he loved Chesterton. And Chesterton was kind of our our guiding Virgil in putting together this issue. Mm -hmm. I, I want to read one quick quote. It's actually on the back of the magazine. There is one thrill that is known only to the soldier who fights for his own flag, to the ascetic who starves himself for his own illumination, to the lover who makes finally his own choice. And it is this transfiguring self-discipline that makes the vow a truly sane thing. I, I just love that quote yeah. because that's what it's about. So rather than, and here we get to why this matters. So one thing I talk about in the editorial, and we've talked about it on this podcast many times, and I'm sure we will again, is the ways that a certain kind of post-liberal politics mm -hmm. fills the void mm -hmm. Um, that ought to be filled by things like vows. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there is a certain strain of 
the post-liberal right that seeks identity and meaning and togetherness in ways that are noxious because mm -hmm. they create that friend-enemy distinction uh, mm -hmm. and emphasize it and drum it up and live off it uh, in a way that is just incompatible with Christianity's command to love the enemy. And I think you can see a similar phenomenon happening on the left where these ideologies of social justice likewise create a kind of us and them um, that rather than the commitment of a vow that's transfiguring self-giving to a vocation or to a spouse or mm -hmm. to a faith, uh, kind of seeks that identity in self-positioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realize I'm speaking probably way too loosely and everything I just said comes with a whole bunch of footnotes that there's, you know, there's probably good ways to do both these things. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that something's political and makes it bad, but the amount of passion mm -hmm. and, and energy that gets put into political forms of post-liberalism um, as opposed to what may seem the more private, but are actually very public mm -hmm. things like there's nothing more public than a marriage, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, seems to me totally misplaced. And, and is, I guess, one of the things that we're going to keep on hammering at yeah. in this podcast is the partisan political is getting way too much of the oxygen in the room. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of the, that that's, that's what it is for me. I don't, I, you know, I, I am a political post-liberal and I have great, a great deal of sympathy for a lot of these projects. Um, you know, I don't think that politically we should be neutral towards the good, which is kind of the, you know, that, that's the basic post-liberal position. But at the same time, the commitment of the self to something that is bigger than you and is transcendent and actually makes a concrete difference in your life and that you ha then have like ev everyday physical obligations towards, like you know, which, which is something that happens in marriage, in monasticism, in, you know, in our, in our baptismal vows, um, and in military service. Like, these are things that are extremely concrete and actually are, take on, like, point us towards a form of life where we're actually, we don't have the kind of emptiness that we then need to fill with um, political positioning as the thing that tells us who we are. I think political positioning is important. I am way too online. I love the discourse. I love it all. But, you know, I, <laughs> my husband and I meet up at the dinner table and that's, there's something very solid and real there that kind of is a reminder of not the unreality or the unimportance of the political, but the relative importance of it. And you know, when we go to church and when we take communion, that's another reminder of the only, the relative importance of the political. And it's something that tells us who we are apart from political friend-enemy distinctions. And people need to have that, that, that sense of non-weightlessness, that sense of weightiness and commitment and belonging to someone other than yourself is absolutely necessary. And the culture that tells you that you only belong to yourself and should only belong to yourself 
it's going to make you insane. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter who you belong to or, or what the thing that you throw yourself into is. In other words, post-liberalism doesn't tell you much. It tells you what you're not, which is liberal. It tells you that you're after that. But it doesn't tell you what you have committed yourself to. And I think that what you, what you do commit yourself to, what, what you say yes to, um, that's a whole separate question. Well, that's exactly it. And it's strange. It's not that, you know, you can find counterexamples. You can find athletes who give themselves to their sport for decades. Um, and, and that's admired. You can find, you know, people give themselves to their art. Uh, and there is the example of, of military service, which, mm -hmm. although it's declining, is still a pretty you know, robust institution in our society. I would just say even there, though, uh, those are typically, with the exception of military service, which we can talk about in a minute, those are increasingly just for a certain small niche of people. They're, mm -hmm. they're almost monkhoods, right? Mm -hmm. um, and getting to military service, mm -hmm. it's actually increasingly also becoming a monkhood is becoming uh there's been these studies out it's, it's certain families right mm -hmm. um it's definitely not a broad reflection at least in the united states a broad reflection of 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 the full swath of the american population mm -hmm. um, th there's a, increasingly a kind of cast of people mm -hmm. who tend to serve and you could you could ask you know why is a, a magazine like plow uh, which is on the record as being committed to nonviolence and we're pretty much against war, uh, care about the, you know, the, the health of the U S military mm -hmm. and how well it's meeting its recruitment goals. I mean, at least in the context of this discussion, one big reason is that military service is one of the premier symbols of self-sacrifice mm -hmm. of, of that giving of making that vow through your enlistment oath that I'm going to serve a cause higher than me. Um, and uh, that, to me, uh, had, has enormous value. I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, Susanna. I didn't realize you don't kind of share my priors on this. I, I don't, but at the same time, I do think that, I mean, the thing that seems to me to be most crucial in military service is not that you're committing yourself to be, to be willing to kill someone else, but that you're committing yourself to being willing to die. And, you know, when I took my baptismal vows, I think of that as a kind of military oath in a way. And I think that was a very common way of that, you know, early Christians thought of what they were doing when they were getting baptized. Like, I'm committing myself to potentially die. And obviously, this was a, huge, this was a big part of like my freak out in conversion. Like, I knew that there wasn't anything that I could hold back. There wasn't, there weren't any conditions that I could put on this. And I knew, you know, Jesus makes it very clear that you are signing up to die. And obviously I think that baptism and entrance into the kingdom of heaven through baptism is, um, you know, that's the paradigmatic thing. That's the thing that we're, that, that desire that we all have to be committed to something fully is meant to find itself in or, or, or to express itself in. But there are all these other kinds of things that are sort of like that, that are also good and that can be also good in as much as they're symbols of that. And obviously marriage is a symbol of 
in a way, what we do when we are, when we're baptized. It's a symbol of union between Christ and his church. And, you know, when we're baptized, that is us entering into that union. This is a very weird way to think about marriage um, as a symbol of baptism. But I think that's kind of a little bit accurate. Um, and I think that, you know, the appealing part and the potentially good part of military service and, the, and that commitment is that it is also a symbol of, of that better thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and... The early Christians, but scripture itself mm-hmm. just loves to use military uh, symbolism and terminology as an expression of what it means to be fully in service to the commander, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to Ignatius of Antioch uh, and, of course, to St. Paul, uh, mm-hmm. put on the armor of God, mm-hmm. which is the vow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess with that, that's kind of why we did an issue on vows. Mm-hmm. Um, hope we've kind of convinced you that vows matter and that they're something worth paying attention to. Uh, what we didn't get into today, but we probably will in future co- uh, podcasts, is bad vows. Because uh-huh. we're not saying that every vow no. uh, is a good one. Um, Again, think, after liberalism, what? Like, what are you committing yourself to? What? So <laughs> there's the object of that vow. Yeah. <laughs> That we need to pay some attention to. Yeah. But I, I think yeah. we, we, we kind of gave away where we think that should go. Yeah. And uh, so welcome to this new series. And we'll be talking about vows and some of these other subjects that we touched on. Marriage, monasticism, uh, the military, and other ways that we can show complete commitment in a society that seems to avoid it. And we should also say that this is a high commitment podcast. It's a very demanding podcast. And having finished listening through this podcast, you are now committed to listening to all the rest of the episodes. Welcome to the Plowcast. <laughs> and now, welcome to Katrin Kuiper, Plow's editor at large. She's written a piece about Les Miserables. So, welcome, Katrin. At long last. <laughs> um. Yeah, so Katrin is our colleague. She's, I had to look up her official title, which is editor-at-large, which is really cool because it kind of makes her seem like she's on the run. The outlaw editor. Yeah, she's the outlaw editor, which is appropriate because today we are going to be talking about a piece that Katrin did for our vows issue um, about a man who was at large. I'm very, I just thought of that tie-in. Yeah, this is really bad. But getting to the point, and his name is... And his name is Jean Valjean. Um, So, Catherine, you pitched this piece, and I was psychotically excited. Um, Pete was less so, although, you know, there's... That's not true. I'm a Victor Hugo fan, and I like Les Miserables, in which Jean Valjean appears, just for anybody who's listening who's not making this connection. Sorry. But I did watch a pretty bad production of Les Miserables in high school, and it kind of jaded me. Well, I mean, also, my my insider sources tell me that your sister, Marianne, listened to the soundtrack repeatedly, like repeatedly, at, when you were at a very impressionable age. This is also true. And it might have damaged you in some way. Yeah. Um. So, but Catherine and I do not have any, you know, our, our attitudes towards both the book and the musical are quite simple. Um, as I was reading your piece, which is incredible, it's called The Vows of Les Miserables. Um, I, I like, yeah, that everything, 
having to do with both the book and the musical um, gets gets me constantly whenever I run into it. Um, do you want to sort of talk us through what what is the storyline here? How, how, what, yeah, what does he have, have to, to do, do with vows? Why vows? What, 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 where are the vows in Les Miserables? All right. Well, first of all, uh, Pete, Les Miserables is all about redemption. So this is your opportunity to redeem your love for this production. Um, but so Jean Valjean um, is um, the main character. He's been unjustly imprisoned um, for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's family. Um, and he gets to prison and it does nothing good for him. And it does nothing good for society. Um, he ends up staying there for 19 years. Uh, he's let out, um, but society does not accept him back. He can't get a job. He can't even find a place to stay. Um, he eventually, uh, finds his way to a Bishop's house, um, who lets him in and gives him a bed for the night. And is pretty much the first person to be kind to him. Um, since he has left, prison um but overnight he steals um he steals every valuable in the bishop's house that he can find um he runs away the police intercept him and bring him back and they say um this man has said that you gave these to him this is a ridiculous story right and the bishop thinking on his feet says no no that's right and in fact you left the best behind and he picks up his two beautiful silver candlesticks this is a very humble Bishop, who doesn't like to live um, in luxury, unlike most of his peers, but he he does have this one thing that is really special to him. It's these candlesticks. He takes this opportunity to give them to Jean Valjean. He cements the story, um, gives them another chance, and the police go away. Um, and then he says, but remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. Um, and then he tells him, I have bought your soul for God. And... Valjean doesn't know what to make of this. He uh, he stumbles out into the night. Um, and then if you're watching the musical, he has this crisis of conscience and a conversion, and he performs a life of service uh, to anybody that he can find. There's this woman who's thrown out of her job because she's trying to support her young child, um, and she's stigmatized as a single mother. Um, and he vows to help her out and, and help her with this child, he goes and he finds the child who's been being cared for by very, um, very unkind foster parents. And he rescues the child um, and he does all these things. But along the way, there is um, a police inspector who gets onto his trail and just can't let him go and um, follows him from one place to the next. So Valjean, essentially, there's this moment of transformation um, and the moment of transformation has a kind of vow-like quality to it, but it's a weird kind of vow. You described that weirdness um, in a really interesting way. You say, um, the promise, as the book described it, was made prior to his own knowledge of it. Do not forget ever, this is what the priest says, that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man, the bishop said. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of any such promise, stood dumbfounded, writes Hugo. It seems that the bishop has somehow vowed this on Valjean's behalf, which is impossible. But in this very impossibility lies the reason why all this is irrelevant to the grace the bishop has offered, and even why the outcome is not his to know. So do you want to sort of unpack that a little bit for us? What What is this vow, and um, what does it tell us about kind of the nature of um, kind of different kinds of vows that you see throughout the book? Right. Um, so... 
there's one thing that I do in the um, piece is there are, the musical is fairly close to the book there, but there are a few interesting differences. Um, in the musical, it's pretty straightforward. The bishop sends him out and says, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. In the book, he tells him, do not forget ever that you have promised me to use the silver to become an honest man, as if he has already accomplished this on Valjean's behalf somehow, but now he's offering it towards him uh, for him to embrace for himself. Um, naturally, this is very confusing to Valjean because it doesn't make any sense. Um, but what he's basically offering him, he's already forgiven him, and he's already given him uh, the means to start another life. He's given them this grace, and he's offering him the opportunity. You can go and do this. I've already accomplished it for you, and you can follow on this new path. Um, and he's free to do that or not. Uh, one thing that you see in the book is he almost doesn't do it. He goes out and he um, commits another petty theft for no real reason. Um, but uh, but then he chooses to embrace this path of redemption um, that's been held out to him. And there are several moments along the way where it's very difficult um, for him to do that. Something very hard is being asked of him, but he thinks back to that moment um, and what he promised to do and the grace that was given him. And it seems to buoy him up when he doesn't find any other kind of strength to go on. And, and that's the support that he gets from this vow, which he didn't even make himself, but then he did choose for himself and it carries him, it gives him a direction for the rest of his life. There's something in this that, as I was reading it, um, and I hadn't thought of this before, but it, it actually is the structure of infant baptism. Like, that's that's kind of what's going on. The priest basically, on Valjean's behalf, vowed his soul to God and then offered that vow to him, like, with, yeah. with, the, with the payment that already was made, both Christ's payment and also the priest's own sort of taking on, um, you know, taking on the loss of the silver. Um, which he doesn't experience as loss because he himself has this profound sense of ha having himself been bought by God. Um, and he, is, he, the priest, having received mercy, can't do anything else but pass it on. And the way that he passes it on is through this vicarious vow. And Jean Valjean, when he looks back on you know, what, what has buoyed him up, he's not looking back on like his own vow in a way. He's looking back on what was like the, the actual power of Christ's forgiveness of the bishop's vow on his behalf. And that's just a really interesting way to think about what baby baptism is about. That's a weird way to think about like what a vow can be because we think of vows as primarily being things that you do on your own behalf. I mean, and obviously he does have to, like he has to convert, like he has to then kind of confirm, you know, this would be if, if the bishop's vow, vow is baptism. His kind of conversion is his confirmation. Um, he does have to confirm that. Yeah, well, you know, actually, I had that same thought. Um, and one thing is that if you do are in a tradition that does infant baptism every time a new infant or an adult um, is baptized, the congregation reaffirms your baptismal vows together. Like you, you have many opportunities to retake that vow that at some point um, was made on your behalf. But he also mentions something there. The bishop, um, he sees himself um, as equal to Jean Valjean um, in need of grace and having received it from Christ originally. And pretty much in their society, nobody else looking at these two characters would see them as equal in any way. You see that in the way that Valjean is received 
um, as a convict and, and everything else. But the bishop sees that correctly, and, and he says that to Valjean, um, he calls him his brother, which uh, no one has ever done that before as well. Um, and they're, you know, they're both stand in this kind of fundamental equality um, towards uh, their need for grace and then um, their ability to pass it on. There's something that sort of um, that you get at when you go on to talking about the police inspector who has who's the one who, you know, keeps on in this kind of relentless pursuit of Valjean throughout the year is Javert. Um, now, Javert has committed himself. I hadn't really thought of this either, but Javert has committed himself to the laws of France. Like to, he's he's upholding the laws of France. He has made that vow. Um, and he also he, he actually this is a detail that you get in the book that you don't get in the movie he actually hates the restored bourbon regime um but he is but he loves the law or, or he love might be the wrong word he he feels the law is as absolutely necessary to his kind of sanity um can you talk about the relationship between that sort of love of the law and and how that gets disrupted by something by grace which sort of takes the structure of a vow or an offered vow Right. So Javert, too, has a vow. Um, he has a vow himself to the law. Um, as you learn, as it goes on, he was born into the sort of criminal underclass, um, and he really detested it and climbed up into uh, the level of like police and law and order as the thing that he saw as necessary to, to keep human society organized um, because, um, because of his experience I mean, you talk about some, living for something greater than yourself. Um, that's well and good, and that's what Javert does, uh, but it's not good enough because um, there's something that's missing there. But he is, it's not, it is greater than himself. There's at points when it conflicts with his own interests, he'll go with what he believes that the law requires him to do. What he doesn't understand is that there is a kind of justice that is even greater than this human law, and he really doesn't want to understand that. And so... For some reason, Valjean is the one who really gets under his skin and he spends his whole life chasing him around, even though there are worse criminals uh, that he could be going after. But he, he gets really fixated on him. And so I think of it as like there's almost like these three layers to reality um, that you see depicted in the book. And the one is like the the really the underneath, the filth of the sewer. And like there's this one guy... Tenardier, he's a con man. He um, uh, he's cruel to everyone he knows, and he tries to rip them off. And like, there's nothing to him except for a life of filth and crime. And he runs into Valjean down there at one point, who's trying to uh, rescue an injured man. And all that he can see is that um, he he assumes that Valjean is doing what he himself um, would do, which is trying to rip off dead bodies. That's all. That's the only layer of reality that he can see. Everyone is like me. Everyone is out for themselves. Um, the next level up from that is the plane of law and order. And that's Javert's plane. And that's where um, you have your law and people who go against the law, they go to prison and you punish them, but you maintain order. But there's another layer of reality that is even above that. And that is the layer of grace. And at one point when Valjean forgives Javert, um, 
and sets him free and uh, for something that Javert has done wrong, and but thus gives him the opportunity to recapture Valjean. He, here, actually, let me pull up this um, this quote too because this is really nice. Um, Javert had never seen the unknown except below. The irregular, the unexpected, the disorderly opening of chaos, the possible slipping into an abyss, all of that belonged to inferior regions, to the rebellious, the wicked, the miserable. Now Javert was thrown over backward, and he was startled by this monstrous apparition, a gulf above him. And he's staring upwards into this void, into this gulf of, of heaven and grace, and this whole other part to reality that he never understood. And he has the opportunity to understand what that is, but he really doesn't like it. And he chooses not to be a part of whatever that is. I was just going to say, harking back to uh, an earlier part of this podcast where Suzanne and I were talking about Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, Javert is actually stuck at those therapeutic yeah. 12 Rules for Life where you've, you, you're learning how to be a reasonably good animal, uh, but missing what it's for. I, th I think it's, I think he's actually a little bit above that because he's not just, it's not just self-discipline for Javert. It is, there is this communal aspect. There is the law, but there is also the sense. I mean, I think that it, he's very Petersonian in the sense that like you get that he has this incredible sense of like the sort of Lovecraftian chaos of the world that might just bubble up and consume you if you don't stick very strictly to, to law he is the antidote to chaos. He is the antidote to chaos. He is a good lobster. Um, and, you know, that is better than chaos, but then at the same time, he doesn't understand what... And, and the solution here is not antinomian. As you, as you point out, Jesus himself says, don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Um, Matthew 5.17. And so it's not that that kind of void you know, what, what Javert perceives to be a void of chaos above in heaven is actual chaos. It's that it's a kind of order that he doesn't recognize and that he's not familiar with and that feels out of his control and that fundamentally is frightening because it's a gift. It's not something that he has pulled himself up by his bootstraps to accomplish. It's not, he doesn't have, he can't have a handle on it the way that he can have a handle on his own um, self-discipline on, you know, on his, role as, you know, as a servant of the laws of France. And I have to say, like, the, the uh, I'm doing it again. This is my second Lewis reference of the day. One thing I jotted in the margin here when you talked about, um, you have this line, as Hugo writes, to sacrifice duty, that general obligation to personal motives. Those personal motives are, you know, Valjean has been merciful to him. Um, and to feel in those motives something general too, and perhaps superior. So, there's this sense of like to to have been, to have received mercy is not just there's something an offering there that's not just personal motives it's actually the law of love it's a high, it is a law but it's a higher law and that's what Javert can't handle um, and I jotted the deeper magic from before the dawn of time which again I'm sorry um, Lewis reference you're quickly using up your your Lewis quote for know. the day you realize I know that. like I've done two of I've done two, and, and we've only done two segments of this podcast. Huge problem. Anyway, so um, that kind of weird non-antinomian 
perception of grace. I thought you did a really good job of kind of teasing out of the book and of the musical, Katrin. Um, yeah, well, I mean, um, Javert is, he's so close to getting it. He actually, what do you see when you look upward? You see the stars. Um, and Javert actually swears by the stars. He has this beautiful song in the musical where he appeals to them, you know, filling the darkness with order and light. Um, and he thinks that is, you know, that is what is there to truly govern the world. Um, and in a sense, it is. But the thing is that he just doesn't understand what it is that he's appealing to at all. Um, and it's, to me, it's a very interesting symbol because, so if you go to see the musical, um, one thing that I've seen in every program that when I've ever seen it, and you'll probably see this in the program, um, is this other beautiful quote from Hugo. Um, and it goes like this. Shall we continue to look upwards? Is the light we can see in the sky one of those that will presently be extinguished? The idea was terrifying to behold, lost as it is in the depths, small, isolated, a pinpoint, brilliant but threatened on all sides by the dark forces that surround it. Nevertheless, no more in danger than a star in the jaws of the clouds. And I think that's there because a lot of what the aspirations of almost everybody fail. There are these revolutionaries fighting against injustice, but they die and they fail and nothing has changed. Um, and that's really, um, that's very sad, but this is Victor, this is Hugo's promise that, um, don't worry, this means nothing to the final cause of justice. Um, it is still out there, like a star in the jaw of the clouds. And that, you know, that's Javert's same star, um, but he doesn't understand it, what it is. There's also, there's another kind of thing that, there's another sort of step to this, which I think you imply at least in your last section about the candlesticks. I mean, I, I read a kind of, you know, this is a step from transcendence to imminence in a way. And this, there's, there's something of the incarnation there. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, well, that is exactly what I had in mind, Susanna. I mean, so you, you have this quote and how are we going to read it? Um, and in one sense, it's the progressive view of history, right? That we didn't succeed this time, but you know, the, um, history is long and bends toward justice. Um, and this will happen in the future. And that's, that's not a bad thing. And in fact, I think that, um, you know, to, some, to whatever extent the progressive view of history is true, like I think that, well, for example, if you, I would rather, if you took um, any given one of these characters, uh, a convict or a single mother or an orphan or a prostitute in France 200 years ago or today, uh, I would rather be that person Today, I think they did achieve some progress, um, and you, like in in steps and starts. And at the time that Hugo writes this book, um, they're on another set of barricades. I think without in the course of the nineteenth century, there were barricades in the streets of Paris somewhere on the order of eight times or so. And this is maybe the second time, and then they're on their fourth or fifth by the time that he writes this novel. And it's like we're getting there. We're 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 still reaching toward this light of progress. But um, we're Christians, and I think that we can do better than that, uh, for one thing, because all those particular people um, that, that suffered and died, what does their suffering mean? Um, if it's only the case that in the future, humanity 
will be better. Um, and so you, but still here we are, there's the cloud, there's the stars way up there. Um, they're in the jaws of the clouds and the, you know, the clouds can't overcome them, but we're down here. And what is going to bridge that divide? And the answer is, it's Christ come to earth. And on the night that we celebrate that happening, you think about it, you're standing in a church and there's one candle and then that candle lights up another candle, and then everybody's lighting each other's candles, and sooner or later, there you are, you're standing kind of in the starry sky um, right here on this earth. It has come to us, and it is um, for God to show his love to this world, and then for us to um, pass that on amongst ourselves. Um, And so that's why I really love the symbol of the candle. The candle is the promise that this this ideal of the star is going to mean something to us, like each of us in our lives and after, um, and not just in the long story of humanity. And I mean, I think that Hugo in, even in his sort of maximalist, like sort of optimistic Kantian, like progressive statement in the book, which is Angelra's speech on the barricades, which, you know, I had such a sort of crush thing going on with Angela among other people in this musical when I was a kid. Um, but you know, you read Angela in the book and he's just, he's the blandest of kind of like, it's very inspiring. He's talking about like progress and he's talking about, you know, we will, we'll harness the, um, the, we'll, we'll have airships and we'll have submarines and we'll have, you know, all this sort of like vision and, the, and there'll be like justice. Um, and then he says something like, um, there will be, be one might even say no more events and it's very much kind of like Angelra's end of history like there's there's a very kind of like if what you're going for even even at its best this kind of this the, the kind of vision of political progress that's offered is kind of dead and what's offered through through grace and you know by the by the priest and by Valjean's faithfulness and by the sort of you know, the, the bits of grace that kind of make their way into people's lives is a kind of justice that's alive and a kind of like, um, an, an end state that's not dead and frozen, even if it's just, and look at us now, we have the submarines and we have the airships. Um, and I don't know about the justice. Um, but so I had this professor in, um, in college, um, and I really wanted to study Les Miserables with him. He had defected from a communist country uh, to France and then ended up in the United States. And apparently he would get this request all the time. Um, can, you know, can you teach Les Miserables? And he said, no. He said, everybody loves it for the revolution, but I've seen that movie and I don't like it. And I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in, in Jean Valjean and what redemption means in his life. And he said, well, okay. Well, we can study it from that lens. But I don't mean to turn, I mean, Andorra and the revolutionaries, they're on to something. I mean, it's unfortunate that there was only one politician, Lamarck, who apparently cared for the suffering of the people at the time. I think we just need to keep our eyes on the now and the not yet, um, because it's both. I, I, I want to figure out a way to like include clips of the songs in this audio, in this podcast. I'm not sure if that's legal or not, but we'll see what we can do. Um, so far I've refrained from bursting into any of the numbers based on my long listening yeah. to my sister's 
CD of this back in the 90s. Pete, I, I want to... Um... I, I feel that the suffering that you've endured listening to Catherine and me talk about this, like give that to God and who knows what he will do with it. But I'm just really impressed. And like, you know, you've done a great, great job. That's that arc of justice. No, but there, there is one piece of it that I'd still like to hear f- f- uh, about uh, from you, Catherine. And that is uh, these two vows, uh, Jean Valjean's vow and Javert's vow uh, kind of, if we're playing out the vow side of this plot line, what happens to them? They 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 collide, according to the uh, subtitle of your article. They do well. Um, so Valjean has a vow to go go where his um, now uh, consecrated conscience leads him, uh, which is often into situations of some pretty extreme self sacrifice. One of which is to go and save Javert. They end up on the same barricade. Javert is being held prisoner and Valjean says, well, give him to me and I'll take care of him. And he lets Valjean go, or Javert go, sorry, knowing that um, he's going to come back and arrest him and, and, and his life is, he knows it, but he knows that it's his responsibility to keep on extending that grace that was given to him. And that's his vow. And you have Javert's vow to the law that now comes into this paradox because he knows that he owes Valjean the debt of his life personally, but he also knows that according to his standards, Valjean belongs back in prison and and he needs to go and do something about that. And and he just, he can't make sense of it without uh, this grace that he doesn't want to think about. And so it just comes to an end right there. And he ends up choosing not to be, as you said, he, he throws himself into the sun rather than live in a world where everything that he thought he understood is turned on its head and he has to recognize some profound common humanity between himself and Valjean and, and he has to sort of see an order that's more encompassing than the order that he has, that he's got a grasp on in a way. What is the point of giving somebody that costly gift of grace who doesn't want it. Um, and you especially see that a little preview of that in the book um, before you get to the interaction with Javert, because it seems that Valjean almost isn't going to do anything with this new life that the bishop has given him. He's just going to go out and keep on terrorizing people and, and stealing. But like, what was the point of what the bishop did for him um, if it is going to have no effect on him, as far as anybody could tell? Because there's still a freedom in that gift of grace. And you can, you know, freedom means you can choose the other way. And um, in Javert, you see that really does happen. I mean, it must have cost Valjean a lot internally uh, to offer this up, knowing what it could do to him. But um, and what does Javert do with that? Nothing, but I think you just have to have faith that um, it is meaningful um, in some deeper sense. And I don't know, maybe we can have David Bentley hard on to debate some universalism for Javert, but topic for another time. Well, we'll hold out hope for Javert. And, you know, I'm convinced and dear listeners, definitely read Catherine's article, which we've just only scratched the surface of it today. And uh, then join me in rereading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Um, I don't know if I'll watch the musical, but I will read the book. 
Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com, that's P-L-O-U-G-H.com for the digital magazine. And you can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine plus digital or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free eBooks to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council, so go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week when we'll be talking with theologian John Milbank about post-liberalism, nationalism, and the nature of commitment, and with King Ho Lung about how we can dare to make vows at all. <laughs>